I might be a hundred years old by the time I get through the Sermon on the Mount at the rate I'm going. After a little review, we'll try and tackle the beatitude that we didn't get to last week, this week. But I only have plans to do one. I really, really was stirred by um, Josh McDonald when he was here and he talked about that the people of God have to have an opportunity to respond to God's Word kind of in the moment. And I want to make sure that I leave some time for that. So, until at least we get through the Beatitudes, uh, we're, we're speaking from the Sermon on the Mount, um, the, the portion that we see in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And um, I want to continue to start that sermon from the end, because the end really puts into perspective all the rest that comes before it, so that we understand that what God's saying is relevant in such a powerful way. So let me just start at the end of chapter 7, and then we'll go back, do a quick review, and then we'll touch on a a beatitude today. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 27. Jesus speaking. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It's important that Jesus would know us. All the, all the works in the world don't necessarily lead to heaven. It's, it's that intimate knowing relationship. That, that word where Jesus says, I never knew you, is the same word that... Mary, his mother, uses when the angel came and told her that she was going to have this child. And she said, I've never known a man. I've never had that intimate knowledge, relationship with a man that would allow me to be pregnant in the natural and conceive and carry a baby. That's the intimacy that that word implies. Jesus goes on and he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And it fell and great was its fall. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that's in your word. Thank you that you admonish us and, and, and you exhort us and you warn us and you teach us, Lord. I pray that we would be people who would not be just hearers of your word, but actors on your word, doers of your word. That our house, that, that the house of our lives, of our families, of our, of our very being, would be fastened firmly to the rock that's our Lord Jesus. Not just through hearing, but through doing. We pray to you in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the Sermon on the Mount starts with these things that we call Beatitudes. And, and they're, they're character traits that should be being developed in us as we walk our walk with the Lord, ever growing more and more in these characteristics that he shows us in these things that are called the Beatitudes. The first three that we've gone over already, um, Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Or lament, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the gentle, the humble, the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. See, to be blessed is to be fortunate, to be happy. Um, 
To be in a very, very good place is to be blessed. And, and the Lord is teaching us in this sermon first that, that this poverty of spirit, those that are poor in spirit, it's a re- character requirement of the kingdom of heaven. A, 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 a proud spirit can't inherit the kingdom. So the first thing he teaches, and, and one of my favorite comment, Bible commentators says this about that first beatitude. David Guzik is the guy's name. He says, the call to be poor in spirit is placed first for a reason because it puts the following commands into perspective. The perspective is that they cannot be fulfilled by one's own strength but only by a beggar's reliance on God's power. And that's the way we need to see ourselves as we read. Now, am I doing that? We don't know what's doing that. Okay. That's the perspective of a poor beggar that's crying out to God that I would be so poor in spirit that I would recognize my need for you in every area of my life, that I would be so broken by sin in my life, that I would mourn in such a way that I would find the comfort of the Holy Spirit. There's comfort when we mourn because the Holy Spirit is the comforter. But he's talking of a comfort that comes from a brokenness that we recognize the damaging work of sin in our lives and that we would, we would cry out to God that he would help us to never, ever, ever have that sin in our lives again. And then the third is about this characteristic. And I think if we were to develop any kind of a personal characteristic relative to the, to the finding in the fullness of the kingdom, it's humility. It's meekness. It's this thing that says, God, you're everything. And I can't do anything without you. I'm so humble in my recognition of who you are and who I'm not relative to you that that humility would drive us into service and it would drive us into um, a place of lowness. The Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So that's where, we, that's where we've been. That's the first three Beatitudes. This week, um, we're going to tackle the fourth Beatitude. Before I do that, I just want... to to put a thought in your minds, and that thought is this, that each and every one of us are eternal beings. You were created by God before the foundations of this world. You were manifest physically in your mother's womb at conception, however many days (laughs) or months or years ago that might have been. And at some point in time, this, this earthly tent that you live in, this physical part of your being, is going to die and it's going to be no more. But you are an eternal being in your spirit and in your soul. The important thing to this little life that we have right now, which the Bible describes as, as a wisp, of, a, of like a breath. If you're outside on a cold winter day, and you just and you can see that vapor in the air for just an instant, that's what this life represents relative to all of eternity. So you're an eternal being that's going to spend eternity someplace. It's either going to be in glory in heaven with God, or it's going to be away from God. And, and, and to be separate from God as an eternal being means to be in that place that's ultimately called the lake of fire, that, that would be hell, that would be torment, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. So consciously, I want you to realize and, and have it at the forefront of your mind as you hear what God says in this beatitude that I am an eternal being. I'm going to spend eternity someplace. It's either going to be with God the Father or it's not. And you can call hell whatever you want. You can call lake of fire described however you find it in Scripture or whatever your perception might be. But understand, to be absent from God's presence is torment. The worst person in the world, any joy they have in their life is because God is gracious and He's allowed them to have some. But absent totally from Him is torment eternal. And there is no coming back from that. 
right? You could make a mistake today and fix it. You could, you could repent and confess Jesus as Lord and, and fix your relationship with God. But once you get to that point where you stand in judgment, you can't say you're sorry. There is no turning back at that point. Okay? So that's the little bit of uh, really fun context that I want you to have in your mind as you hear what the Lord has to say in this next beatitude. Number four, Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let me read you just one more scripture real quick. I'm sorry, I don't know what that means. Try the other mic. Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let me read to you from Isaiah 32. It gives you a little perspective on righteousness. Now, I'm going to add some words, but they're, they're, they're right words uh, just that I've pulled from other translations, but the words you have on the screen would be literally the words that, as they re- read in the New American Standard. And the work, the fruit, the work or fruit of righteousness will be peace, and the service or the effect of righteousness, quietness, confidence, and security forever. There's two ways that we have to think about righteousness in regard to the kingdom and and to scripture and to relationship with God. The first is literally right standing before God. If you've confessed sincerely from your heart Jesus as Lord and you believe that as a sinner separated from God by your sin, that he is the full and complete payment for that transgression and that by faith in him and the confessing of him as Lord over your life, You become saved. And when you become saved, you become in right standing with God. From God's perspective, he sees you as righteous. If you were unrighteous, he wouldn't see you. Your eternity would be away from him. So you have a positional righteousness, which is in Christ Jesus. You cannot be righteous before a holy God outside of Jesus Christ. There is no righteousness for man outside of Jesus Christ. So so the first perspective that you should have on righteousness is your standing with God. If the ceiling falls on your head today and you die, if you're righteous before God, then you're going to go to heaven and be with him. If you're not, you're not. Okay? That's the first one. The second one, I've tried and tried to find definitions of righteousness that would be the righteousness of our lives, of actually how we conduct ourselves, of the thoughts that we allow to be in our heads and the thoughts that we would command cast down out of our heads, how we live our life in a righteous way. And I found one that I just love. I mean, I've looked for a long, long time, and this is it. Righteousness, in that context, the state of him who is as he ought to be. So righteousness, as, as our behavior, as the way we live our lives, would be measured as how we ought to be. So if, if I stand in righteousness with my wife, I would be a godly husband. With my children, I would be a godly father, following the precepts and the teachings of Scripture, being as I ought to be. So two kinds of righteousness that you need to be conscious of. The first is literally your standing within God. Does he find you in Christ or not? If he finds you in Christ, then you are righteous in his eyes because the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been imputed to you unto your relationship with God. The second being, how do I live my life? Am I being as I ought to be? Okay, make sense? All right. I thought of two examples, or a couple. Of, uh, uh, one is an example. If, if that righteousness thing with God doesn't work, think about your visa card. If you go to use your visa card... 
and the retailer takes it and you get, I always feel so good when I see on the little screen, it says approved. I've been approved. Somebody says I'm okay. You're righteous with Visa. You're in right standing with Visa because they've received your card. But if you don't pay your Visa bill when it comes and you get in arrears, then they flip some switch in their computer and the thing says you're not approved because you're not in right standing with Visa. Make sense? Okay. The second thing is back to the Isaiah scripture that talks about the fruit and the effects of righteousness. The fruit being peace and the effect or the service of righteousness being quietness, confidence, and security, eternal security forever. In, in your righteous position with God, you have security forever. Um, practically, if you think about this, and maybe none of you have ever had this, but I've had times in my life where if I saw in my caller ID a certain name come up, I'd sweat. My heart would stop because at some point I had probably gossiped or maliciously spoken or said something out of order about a person to another person. And I'd see that person's name and I'm like, "Uh oh, somebody told them what I said and now I'm going to have to hear from them. And, And I would have no peace. But the peace that comes from the second righteousness, the one that says I'm living as I ought to be, says that I don't gossip about you. When, when your name comes up on my caller ID, I have nothing but peace because I'm walking in this righteousness that's the way the Bible teaches. It brings a peace to my life that there's no skeletons in my closet. I don't have to worry. And honestly, I've had skeletons in my closet. I mean, from the time I was a teenager, I've had skeletons in my closet. There are no skeletons in my closet right now. There, there isn't anything that I'm aware of that I've done to be offensive to somebody that would cause me to not have peace when I sleep at night. And I want you to know that is an excellent, excellent place to be. It's so wonderful. It's worth fighting for being how you ought to be to have that peace in your life. Righteousness. The second part of that, which is actually scripturally the first part, is hunger and thirst. And and I was asking the Lord, it's like you have all these characteristics in the Beatitudes, but you don't say hunger and thirst except for in this one. Why is hunger and thirst so important to righteousness? That you would say, you know, blessed are the righteous, for they shall be satisfied. You say blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. They will find that righteousness in passionate hunger and thirst. So maybe it's that righteousness isn't easy. Maybe that righteousness that is our standing before God that would allow us to be with him eternally isn't cheap. The Bible says it's a free gift, and and honestly, I, I don't quite understand that because it's free in that God offers it to everyone. You can't buy it through your works. Maybe that's what it means. But it does cost you something. When Jesus speaks of a disciple, he says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to turn over your whole life to me. You have to count the cost and decide to die to yourself and live to me. That if you would die to this life of yours, that you can have your life. But if you choose to keep your life, then you can't have life eternal. So maybe what God is saying is that we have to understand that To be righteous requires a certain passion that isn't natural for us to achieve just in our normal day-to-day life. And I know that's true because the flesh wants something other than how I ought to be. My flesh is tempted all the time. Um, I have to choose through a passionate 
hunger and thirst for the Lord to put down my flesh and be as I ought to be in his sight. Now, being as I ought to be isn't... I, I, I know people get me... They get mad at me sometimes because they think I'm a works-based salvation guy, and I'm not. I, I totally understand that being as you ought to be doesn't buy you eternity with God. Being in Christ buys you eternity with God. That's it. There's no amount of how you ought to be that will ever get you to eternity in heaven, only that you be found in Christ the way you be found in Christ. You confess him as Lord. You believe in your heart that he's the full payment for your sin. Okay? I want that to be perfectly clear. But we are called to righteousness. Scripture says, you shall be holy, God, as God, as I am holy. For you shall be holy as I, God, am holy. Well, that's a pretty tall order because his holiness is perfect. Right? We need righteousness. It must not be easy to attain because he says that in order to have it, we must hunger and thirst for the blessing of righteousness. Think of hunger and thirst in terms of life and death. Remember at the beginning I talked about you're an eternal being? This is why. That without righteousness, your eternity is death. With righteousness, your eternity is life. So that righteousness that understands those first three Beatitudes, the poverty of spirit, that person who's, who's broken to the place of hungering and thirsting for the righteousness that understands the poverty of our spirit, the, the, the consequence of our sin, and ultimately that we would be broken to the place of absolute humility before God is the, is the price, I think, of hungering and thirsting. It's a focus. Remember, we've talked about this before. Just, I love that how Bill Johnson, in this case, Bill Johnson, it's other people too, but when God speaks to the church, sometimes he's got a message for the whole church. And Bill Johnson was speaking the same message about passion. And he used hunger and thirst as an example. And he said, hunger and thirst will focus you. If, if you have um, an empty belly, and not hunger or thirst like, you know, wow, it's almost lunchtime. I, I think I'm a little hungry. It's, that's not the kind of hunger that that Jesus and the people that he was speaking to would have understood if the crops didn't come in that year or, you know, in a desert land in a drought, they didn't have water to drink. You are so focused. Uh, Shane's not here. Shane Steckroth is a wrestler and a wrestling coach cutting weight. And you can't even drink water, those guys, when they're cutting weight. I used to wrestle. You'd, you'd never guess, but I did. And I remember when we would cut weight, you couldn't even drink water. And, and I would dream about drinking water because my body was so dry that's the hunger and thirst that the Bible is speaking of, that our passion and our focus would be 100% on that because without that kind of thing, we're literally dead people. Gosh, I don't know, three Wednesdays ago, the Lord has been speaking to us out of Revelation chapter 3, right? The Laodicean church, the church at Ephesus, where he says that you're lukewarm, you're neither hot nor cold, I spit you out of my mouth. His command is for us to repent and be zealous. I don't know whether or not that's stirred you to a place of wow, but it really has to me. I mean, I really felt personally convicted that my zeal for the Lord was less than the, the standard that his word was teaching me. And on a Wednesday night, I was right here. And we were worshiping and praying. But I was by myself. I mean, there were other people here. But it wasn't a corporate moment. It was a private moment. And I was crying out to the Lord, please, God, please, you can't let me be dispassionate. You can't allow me to be lukewarm. You have to stir me. You have to shake me. You have to do whatever you do because I can't imagine eternity in hell. I have to have your heaven, God. 
I have to. And I was literally crying out to God that he would please do whatever he had to do because I was concerned for my own literal salvation. That went on for a, a series of moments. I don't know how long it was. Um, for years, the Lord has blessed me to be able to, before being a pastor, even you know when I was just Pat the guy at the Freedom Center, um, I could stand and face people and I could look and God would make a, make a person stand out. And, and, and it would just catch my attention. He wouldn't necessarily say a word to me. But as I looked, it'd be like, man, I can't stop. It's you right now. <laughs> I can't stop looking at that person. And then I would just go. And it would always be somebody I knew. It would never be someone I didn't know. And, and then I would go pray for them or ask them if I could pray with them. And we would have an appointment. Literally a divine appointment would happen over and over again. So I felt that. So I'm standing here and I'm looking you know, at the people is there somebody, Lord, that you want me to pray for? And uh, Marv Blitchock catches my attention. So I walk over, and Marv is worshiping, and I just reach up to hold his hand because I'm thinking that God sent me to pray for him. I'm, I'm not, I don't even know what to pray. And as soon as I take his hand, he looks at me, and he starts declaring over me, Pat, you are so saved. You are so saved. Oh, God wants you to know you're so saved. And I'm like, Dang. That is awesome. Except then in my head, I'm like, oh, Lord, but you measure the heart. He only can see the outside. He can't see the heart. But you measure the heart, God. And I don't know if my heart is pure before you. I know maybe, you know, I'm a whitewashed tomb full of dead men's bones. But you see my heart. He, if he's not in the spirit, is looking at my outside. And, and he finished praying over me, and I got up, and I came right back up here, and I was praying that same thing. Lord, but what about my heart? What about my heart? And I feel a hand get on my back. And it's Gene. And he puts a hand on my shoulder, and he puts a hand on my chest. And he says to me, you have to start training up pastors. And I'm like, Gene, I don't 90% know what I'm doing myself. How in the world am I going to train up pastors? And he said, no, the Lord loves your heart. He sees your heart, and he loves your heart. And I just about came unglued. So I don't know about the rest of you, but at least for that moment, I'm pretty sure if I died, I was going to go to heaven. <laughs> I might have wrecked it since then. The point is, there's got to be a passion. There has to be a fear of God. We had that word today, a fear of God. The, the, the spirits of God, one of them is the fear of the Lord. There has to be a reverent fear of God and his wrath that we understand that we have to be broken to this place of crying out, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Because it might not come any other way. Maybe it's simple. Maybe you just pray a prayer and, and you get a check mark next to your name in the book of life and all is good. But, man, when I read scripture, I'm not sure I see it that way. God is a graceful and a merciful God, but he demands everything from us. Oh, I put the scripture up there, but I didn't put it here. Um, this is the thought that the Lord gave me as I was praying about all this. He said, righteousness is not just something to be attained, but it's something that also must be retained. That we would come to a place of righteousness before the Lord, but we must retain that righteousness before him. And if it weren't, maybe you could put up the Philippian scripture for me. I don't have it in, in my notes here. The Philippian scripture says, then, my beloved, just as you... This is Paul now speaking to the church at Philippi. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. If this righteousness that I've attained isn't something that I have to retain, what is there for me to work out in God's eyes? Right? Why would I work out my salvation with fear or trembling? You wouldn't. Right. But, this, but the, Paul, in his exhortation to the, to the church of Philippi, is telling them, listen, you obey me great when I'm there, but even more so, you need to obey me when I'm not there to watch you. You need to be working out this salvation of yours in, in a mode of fear and trembling, of concern that, that if there was sin in your life, you would be so mournful and so repentant as the second beatitude teaches, that you would cry out to God, understanding that, that if your heart is sincere, he's already forgiven your sin, Right? But that character, that, that way of being and thinking is so powerfully important that you must work out this life of walking with Christ with fear and trembling. The second thing that he impressed upon me is that righteousness not only must be attained and maintained or retained, but also ever-increasing. So this how I ought to be, right? The, the righteousness that you're standing before God is binary. If you're, if you're familiar with computer language, a one or a zero, you're either, the light's either on or it's off. You're righteous or you're not. There is no, you know, he's pretty close. You know, he's sort of in, he's sort of out. There is no place of in between. There's only found in Christ, not found in Christ. But the righteousness that is as I ought to be should be ever-increasing, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 read this. For a child, we will, this is a prophetic uh, verse about Jesus. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. He says that there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. Where does Jesus' government reside? It's in the church. It's in us. So if he has, if he has ruling governance over my mouth... Maybe I don't say swear words like I used to. He's, his government has increased to the place where it, it's controlling now the words that come out of my mouth. But maybe his government has an increase to the place where it controls the things I look at on my computer. His government is to increase. It never stops increasing. The, the, the government of Jesus Christ, the, the, the authoritative role, control of Jesus is to be ever increasing. It will never stop increasing. We can measure the government of the Lord in our own selves. So this righteousness that is how we ought to be should never ever reach a point where it can stop. Because at that point we're Jesus. Now, personally, I believe you could get to that point. And a lot of people would disagree with me on that. But Romans says that I'm no longer a slave to sin. That my slave is righteousness. Literally, a slave to righteousness. And that there is no sin that has the power, the authority to control me. Because I have the power of the Holy Spirit inside of me. Sadly, I still retain free will. So if I sin with the presence of God inside of me, 
It's because whether I consciously understood I was doing it or not, I made a choice to sin. There are areas of our lives where the governance of this person, this prince of peace that, that Isaiah talks about in his prophecy has not yet overcome. Now, to some extent, you can be okay with that because you, you, you only get to where you get as God leads you there. There are things that he makes you aware of. If you're aware of them, you need to deal with them. If he hasn't made you aware of them, he will. Because his ultimate objective for us is to develop in us the character and the perfect likeness of his son so that, we're going to get there in a couple weeks, that we can be salt and light to this world so that his kingdom can expand outside of us into the next person and the next person and the next person. Okay? Where's Isaac? Are you... Isaac, can you, or anybody, Margie, somebody can come and play and maybe bring these big lights down for me just a minute. I'm committed to doing this. It's going to be probably a while till I get good at it. To give us all an opportunity to respond, to respond to what the Lord is telling us. Are there areas of our lives that his government hasn't invaded yet? Maybe even that area would be the ultimate righteousness of standing before God. I prayed and prayed that if there's anybody here that isn't righteous, isn't found in Christ today, and the calling of the Lord, we don't come to, Scripture says that nobody comes to the Son. It's in John chapter 6 twice. Nobody comes to the Son, Jesus, that, unless that they be called by the Father. So if there's a person here today that you feel that calling on your heart. If maybe you're like me, you've been so convicted to the place of, of lukewarmness, of, of less than your call, that you would cry out to God and say, save me, then let this day be the day. And, and let me just tell you that it's a high calling to come into that level of grace called salvation. The calling is that you would die to yourself as the Lord leads you to die to yourself, but understanding that you have, you have committed yourself to death. You're going to get baptized, and you're going to go down, like Jesus died on the cross and went into the tomb, that you might be resurrected back to life in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ means in his likeness, as a disciple, as a follower, as someone who's committed to his ways, outside of my ways, outside of the world's ways, to his ways. It means that I understand, even intellectually, that I've been disconnected by my sin from God. And there's only one way, Jesus, back into right relationship with God. He's the full payment. See, Paul told the church at Galatia, because these, these false teachers had showed up, and they said, listen, you can't be a Christian until you're a Jew first. So first you must be circumcised, then you receive Jesus, and you can have salvation. He said that if you accept anything of law above the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross for your salvation, you are now obligated to all of the law. You have been severed from Christ and you've fallen from grace. It is only what Jesus did that allows any of us to have relationship with he and the Father. Nothing else. Okay? So if that's you, I want to ask you to stand up or raise your hand or come forward, but you need, to, you need to make connection with me or with Teresa or with somebody that you know can explain to you 
and pray with you what it means to give your life to Jesus because that's what you're really being called to do. For everybody else, let this be an opportunity to invite the Holy Spirit to come and take your life, that you would be surrendered under righteousness, that you would be surrendered unto being as you ought to be, before the holy God who loves you, who's called you to purpose. Your purpose is not just to be saved. Your purpose is to expand God's kingdom. Your purpose is to be transformed by the renewing of your mind into the likeness of Jesus Christ from glory to glory to glory as you become more and more like Jesus. So now is the time that you ponder those words. You ponder that you are an eternal being that you're going to exist forever, ever, ever. Time has no end. Will you seek the righteousness in Jesus Christ? And will you see the righteousness that is how you ought to be? I might just add that we don't have the strength to be transformed, but we do have the strength to say yes. See, if you, if you could do it yourself, then you'd either choose to do it or you wouldn't. And if you chose to do it, you'd go to heaven. And if you chose not to do it, you'd go to hell. And all of eternity would just sort itself out based upon you could and you did, or you could and you didn't. But you can't. You don't have it in you. There is no power that you own personally that can get you to that place of righteousness. Even how I ought to be righteousness. It's only by your choosing to agree with God and then allowing his Holy Spirit to take you through the refiner's fire, through those tests, through those trials, through those tribulations, through those embarrassments when he shows you you're a gossip. I'm, I'm telling you my testimony now when he shows you that you're prideful, when he shows you that you're selfish, and when you think you've overcome it, you find out that selfishness has about a thousand layers and you just scrape the top one off the surface because he's showing you the next one and he's showing you the next one. Oh man, another awesome revelation we had this week from the Lord was this. You don't have to answer out loud. What's the opposite of love? Maybe. The, the, the obvious word is hate. But the revelation that we had was the opposite of love is selfishness. And you know what? There is no greater love demonstrated than a person would give his life, selflessness, for someone that he loves. Selfishness is a big deal that we need to repent of. The Lord showed me selfishness with three pieces of chicken, a big one, a little one, and a small one. And I stuck my fork into the big one. And he said, I told you. And I'm like, Lord, I always take the big piece. I'm the dad. He said, okay, selfish takes the big piece. Maybe the dad takes the big piece too, whatever. He didn't punch me in the face. And I'm like, and I took the thing off my fork. And I know Teresa wants the little piece. So I was okay with the middle piece because she wanted the little piece. So I took the middle piece. 
And then I was always conscious whenever I'd see something. I'm, a, I'm not taking the first one, I'll take the second one. I'm not taking the best one, I'll take the worst one. And I thought, man, I've overcome selfishness. And then God, when I was praying, I don't remember if it was a vision or how he did it, but he showed me the filthy selfishness in my heart in a way that I thought, oh no, I don't know that this is possible, Lord, to shake this, but it is. Why? Because nothing is impossible for God. Nothing is impossible. That selfish spirit that's had me my whole life is going to bow its knee to Jesus' lordship in my life. Yours too. Thank you. Well, Father, I pray today over each and every one of these people, Lord, and, and all of your church, but especially all of this church, God, that we would hunger and thirst for righteousness that we would walk in the fruit and the effects of righteousness in our life, Lord, that we would have that eternal security and that peace that comes from having no skeletons in our closet because we're being as we ought to be. And I pray, God, that no matter how painful it might be to confront the issues of our lives, that as you show them to us, that we will stand up and say, yes, yes, God, you take that from me and replace it with righteousness. I pray that over me. I pray that over my wife and my children. I pray that over this church, God, each and every person that would choose to say yes, Lord, that you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that we will not act as slaves to sin when sin is not our master anymore. And I pray it in Jesus' mighty name. And I thank you so much, God. I thank you that if you give us just a little taste It makes us hungry for more. So I ask for a little taste, Lord, a little taste for all of us of something new that would make us hunger and thirst for that righteousness that you've called us to, that holiness for you are holy. In the name of our Lord Jesus.